Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to have another guest interview today. And uh, today I am having a return visitor uh, who I had on the first time at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's going to be great to get caught up now. Uh, but it is a Dr. Michael Rich, and he is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And he's the Director of the Digital Wellness Lab and practices adolescent medicine at Boston's Children's Hospital. Dr. Rich is the founding director of the first evidence based medical program addressing physical, mental, and social health issues associated with digital technology, the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders. As the, and I'm putting air, air quotes, but maybe it should be trademarked, the mediatrician, do you understand that's like a play on pediatrician, but he's the mediatrician, Dr. Rich offers research-based, balanced, and practical answers to parents' teachers, clinicians' questions about children's media use and the positive and negative implications for their health and development. Understanding the power of screens to engage, connect, and change us all, he's bringing together pediatricians and software engineers, educators and designers, psychologists and screenwriters into the Digital Wellness Lab to synergize in researching, responding to, and innovating a digital environment in which we can raise healthy, smart, productive, and kind children. Michael, thank you for being back. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, I was so excited when I got your email uh, announcing the initiatives that you've taken off during the pandemic. I mean, it was enough to just deal with the surging mental health crisis that happened with adolescents, let alone taking on this initiative. So can you bring our parents up to speed on uh, on what you've just launched? 
Uh, well, the Digital Wellness Lab is an outgrowth of um, the Center on Media and Child Health, which we've had for nearly 20 years, Boston Children's Hospital. The goal of it was really to build an evidence base of how we all, but children in particular, are affected by the screens we use and how we use them. Um, and really looking at the evidence look at affecting how we, our physical, mental, and social health are influenced by these screens and, and particularly about the way we use them. Um, but after nearly 20 years, as I say, at the, at, at building this evidence base, it really felt like we were still all in our silos. We were still, the academics were working on academic issues. The tech world was building their products and basically beta testing them on the world. The academics would then say, whoa, wait a second, here's, here's some things to be worried about. And, you know, of course, in the meantime, the Facebook papers happened in Congress and, and all, all of this, you know, public upheaval around it. Um, and it really revealed that not only was there a kind of a vacuum in the middle between the folks who were for kids and protecting kids and helping kids and those who are, you know, developing the technology, developing the content for that technology. And so I felt that after, you know, decades of us criticizing each other, that maybe we should take the contrarian and audacious move of synergizing with each other. So the Digital Wellness Lab is in some ways, for those who know it, um, akin to the MIT Media Lab in the sense that what we are trying to do is bring together smart, innovative, out-of-the-box thinkers from all of the stakeholders in the digital ecosystem and put them in a room together effectively and work the problem. Um, so the idea is to put a pediatrician next to a software engineer, next to a neuroscientist, next to a screenwriter and see what happens when they all focus on the fact that we are living in this digital ecosystem together. Um, many of us are raising children or teaching children or caring for children in that environment. And we need to all bring our skill sets to bear on building a, an ecosystem that is kinder and friendlier to children, that'll, that really focuses on a second bottom line, and that is the wellness of individuals and of the society they form. And so that's what the Digital Wellness Lab is about, all about. <laughs> And, and so I'm so interested, Michael, are people getting along? I mean, I mean, I love the idea of having all the different stakeholders that have different opinions. But I mean, is there literally anyone there saying, let's ruin the mental health of children? I want to make a dollar on my app. I mean, when when does when you're all in the same room and you're talking, what becomes the contrary position? What becomes the tension point? Uh, the tension point really is that the way that they have been doing business to date, whether they are, you know, making movies for the theater or whether they are building apps or devices has been based on the metric of profit, whatever that, however that's defined, whether it's tickets sold, devices sold, um, or eyeballs on screen. Um, and it's become eminently clear that that is not the only bottom line we should have, um, that there are other effects on both individuals and society um, that are unintended. And, and I mean that 
quite seriously. In other words, I think that we are going down the wrong road if we are pointing fingers at tech and saying this is big tobacco, uh, as was done in Congress. Um, tobacco is a product that is toxic when used as directed. These screens are not necessarily toxic when used as directed, but when they are used mindlessly, um, they can be harmful. Um, what we do can be harmful with them. And so what we are hoping to do is find like-minded individuals, often, frankly, people in the business who have kids themselves and are having second thoughts. Um, everybody knows that Steve Jobs never let his kids have an iPad. And taking that Luddite approach is also not realistic or practical. Um, this is a, you know, a technology. These are devices that kids need to learn to use and use well in the 21st century to learn, well, et cetera. Go ahead. Well, Go ahead. well, and I heard to your point about, you know, why we you know need to be in conversation together. I heard the gentleman who invented the like button had no idea the ramifications that that was going to have down the road. And in mm -hmm. hindsight said, let's and in Canada, they did do uh, testing on the positive impacts of taking that down. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, not going in with malicious intent, but only realizing through evidence-based research that the outcomes of what we design doesn't always have the, the impact that we want. And so, so long as we're in communication and we all have this sort of ethical through line and we work together, then, you know, we get to emphasize the positive of tech, you know, while downgrading and mitigating some of these negative, negative factors. That's precisely the goal of the Digital Wellness Lab, which is to say this digital ecosystem is here to stay. Um, it is morphing and evolving all the time. Um, and instead of the companies who are creating it, either pretending that there aren't bad outcomes or playing defense with pub publicists and attorneys, um, we're hoping that they will invest in um, really understanding what's going on and taking those findings, not as criticism of their products after the fact, after they're out there, but baking them into the earliest stages of R&D and, and really saying, we are focusing on keeping our users, our consumers well. And, and helping them to live a better life, to be the best they can be. Um, and I think that that is really the difference between tobacco and, and the, the tech companies, which is we are finding that there at least are individuals within those companies that see the problem um, and see the problem also as a business problem, which is how do they sustain their success if people don't trust them? if people don't use them. And so the idea is, can we get in a room? Can we be essentially constantly tinkering with this and making it better, um, making it more supportive of children um, and really allowing it to be the power tool that it is for good. Um, and at the same time to avoid the pitfalls. Yeah, like nuclear medicine versus nuclear warfare, right? I mean, right. Or, <laughs> you know, or nuclear power generation versus nuclear warfare. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think, you know, this is not, you know, not something to be approached with fear or with hubris, right? I think this is something that we need to approach quite seriously as a reality of our lives. Um, 
We have to have the information and strategies at hand for managing it. Um, and we really need to um, become adept at it and adept at parenting in the digital space. Um, I, I think the other thing that has happened, of course, is that because kids are facile with this, they've grown up with it, they know it well. Um, a lot of parents say, I, I'm going to, I, I just can't go there. I, you know, I'm checking out. I, uh, um, as long as they're not having sex and selling drugs, I'm, I, I'm okay. Um, and I think that we need to parent them in the digital space. And in fact, we need to parent them 360, 360 degrees, understanding that for them, there is no difference between reality and virtual reality. There is no online and offline. It is one seamless space that they move in and out of. And we need to be there for them as parents, as teachers, as you know, uh, leaders of society um, to give them the skills to navigate that much larger digital and natural environment um, in ways that are consistent with who they are, who they want to be, what they want to learn, what they want to do. Yeah. And, and re- so this is what I love about the resources that you put together. So there's, there's many, it's a multifaceted, this, this, the digital wellness lab has things not only for parents, but also researchers and, and clinicians like me. So um, let's talk about what the parents can find there. Although I don't want to miss circling back and talking about the other pieces. What can the parents find oh. if they go to the site? Well, one of the things that we um, actually did the first edition of um, just before or just when the pandemic was hitting um, and have done one since and are about to release um, the third edition, sort of the the next normal edition is something called the Digital Wellness Guide. And, uh, you know, I sort of flippantly call it Dr. Spock for Mr. Spock, um, that, that it's, you know, following, following the de- child through the developmental stages, right, from newborns through to young adults, to really look at the sort of the developmental tasks of those periods of life, um, the ways that the interactive media world interfaces with that, um, and um, how we can optimize their well-being at each of those stages. So it is everything from here are the great opportunities in this space, um, here are the things to watch out for, um, and even um, how to talk to your kids about these things. Because that's another thing that parents often feel uncomfortable with is how do I bring it up to my kid that I'm really not happy that they're playing Grand Theft Auto or even how do I tell my own parents, the grandparents of my child, not to plop them down in front of the television all day? Um, and so it really is helpful in in ways that are very practical to help parents in a knowledgeable and confident way um, do their parenting, guide their children, um, and learn with and from their children about the this rapidly evolving ecosystem. Um, how to be the best humans they can be. One of the things I appreciated about the design of it, um, yes, that it's in the developmental steps, but within each developmental step, you talked about all the kind of major milestones. So there's things in in the early infancy 
for example, toddler, that is, is about the importance of movement or fine motor skills or gross motor skills. And, and it may or may not intersect with technology, but you're making right. sure that everybody has this continuing guideline of all the important major developmental steps and where it may or may not be impacted by technology. And you certainly see how it infuses. You might not, you know, it may not have crossed your mind, um, the research on the difference between a parent reading a story with a child on their lap and how to point out the different words and pictures and make those connections versus grammar reading on FaceTime or something. And so it was very um, uh, comprehensive and really informative and robust. I thought it was fantastic. uh, We're trying to make it as practical as possible, right? So it's something that parents can uh, refer to um, if they have questions, but also to open their eyes to some things. For example, that there are a number of, quote, baby videos that imply either by their name or um, with a label on it that they are going to make your baby smarter. And there is no evidence that they work. And in fact, there's some evidence that kids who spend a lot of time with them are actually delayed in things like language acquisition, um, and, and which is such an important thing in the early years of life. Um, so I, I think that we are trying to look in as, in as clear-eyed a way as possible about exactly what is happening for the child, what is happening in that interaction between the child and the screen, um, and how parents can be present in their child's world. Um, And it also talks about the parents' use of their devices too, um, which is, you know, a a concern that, um, you know, there is good evidence that less interaction from a parent um, leads to more problems for the child, both in learning and mental health down the road. And, you know, uh, a parent who is staring at their smartphone uh, while with their child is not available to that child, is not there to um, enjoy the child, observe the child, play with the child, teach the child, and just be with each other. And so um, one of the things that I, I, I have been known to say is instead of searching for killer apps, we should be searching for killer bees. Why would we search for killer bees? Well, they are be balanced in our online and offline lives, be mindful, use these power tools for what they do well, but also turn them off when they don't do everything well. Don't make them the default position. And perhaps most important, be present. Be present for your child. Don't take devices to the dinner table. Do not, you know, be staring at your your tablet or your laptop while you are with your kids. Um, You are not going to do the work you're trying to do well because they will want to distract you and you're not there for them. Remember why we had kids in the first place. We wanted to enjoy these new, new humans. I often think that when I see people walking down the street, pushing a stroller on their phones and I think, well, the baby might not be squawking and the baby might not be complaining and fussing, but that there is magic that happens developmentally when we just share a gaze and mimic each other's facial expressions. And you'd probably point out, look at the tree. There'd be other things that you would be doing if that phone wasn't there. And we might not be noticing that we're denying them a developmental moment, but, but we are. We are absolutely. And, you know, we learned a lot when um, the fall of of the Ceausescu regime in Romania 
um, happened and we went into the orphanages where these kids had had minimal stimulation. Basically, they were warehoused and um, they didn't make a noise because they learned very early on that making a noise made no difference. And so they were, you know, in a state of, you know, high stress, but low, you know, low interaction with people. And we're finding that their brains develop differently. Um, they have a lot of not just emotional and behavioral problems, but actually intellectual problems because of that lack of stimulation. And I, I worry about that when I see parents, you know, pushing a swing on the playground while checking their email and, and things of that nature. Um, I think it's it's a really um, important opportunity um, to be with your child when, frankly, this moment is fleeting. You know, you, you, they're born one day and next day, you, thing you know, you're sending them off to college, never to see them in the same way again. Right. <laughs> and, and so let's let's enjoy our children. Let's participate with our children. Let's be with them. Yeah, including as you get into the older um, developmental stages, you talk about the importance of co-play. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in, it, you know, instead of telling your kid you hate this video game or whatever, sit down next to your kid and play it with them. Now, you will never have a chance of beating them, but you're doing <laughs> something very important there, which is saying, I love you. I respect you. I want to understand why this engages you. I want to be part of that world with you. Um, and then when you finally figure out the 47 different moves you have to make to steal a car in Grand Theft Auto, and you turn to your child and you say, now I finally figured out how to steal cars. Let's talk a little bit about why you might want to practice that over and over and over again. Um, we can't expect them to have the executive functions of impulse control, future thinking um, that they will not get fully until their mid to late 20s. Um, but what we can do is scaffold the development of those executive functions. We can set an example for them and lead by example um, with how, how we use these tools, but also how we are present in their lives. Um, one of the dangers, of course, is that um, if we allow kids sort of free reign in the online space and don't have any involvement with them, it can become like rock and roll, which is I like it even more because mom and dad don't understand it and don't like it. And what we're losing here is a real opportunity to both be with them, but also to guide them through what can be a confusing and sometimes scary place on the internet. They can end up in places that they don't understand or, um, you know, are, are frightened by. But if you're not present for them, they don't see you as their support, as their advocate, um, so much as a cop who's trying to get them to turn it off. Yeah. Um, can you speak to, just because you brought up the Grand Theft Auto, and um, uh, uh, so what do we know about the impact on our older kids that are exposed to that kind of, whether it's in gaming or social media around values that are, you know, violence, derogatory to women, um, you know, what does the research say in terms of how fearful parents should be that if they're playing this and enjoying it and it goes against the family values, how do, is it making them more violent? Is it making them have lower opinions about women? Um, 
frankly, we we don't know for sure. But what the evidence indicates is not so much that it's teaching kids to, you know, take a gun to school and shoot up their school so much. It's not so much about copycat behavior as it's shifting the center. It's shifting the likelihood that an argument will, you know, evolve into a fight, a physical fight, um, that the way we talk to each other is coarsened and is not empathetic. Um, and so it's it's really more that it may normalize misogyny. It may normalize racism. It may normalize those things where kids don't even recognize that they are committing little microaggressions all day long. Um, and so I, I think what we have to understand is that these interactive media are arguably uh, the best educational technology we have out there in the sense that, you know, a video game sets a, a, a con- set of conditions an environment and a set of rules. You are punished for doing things wrong. You are rewarded for doing things right. Now that may be playing soccer and it may be shooting people. Um, and so I think we just have to be very respectful of the fact that for children, every moment is a teachable moment. Um, and um, we need to not let them, you know, go rogue essentially with these with these games or devices, but have a presence in their lives that can give them some guardrails. You know, let them drive, but they need guardrails on that road. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So this guide, which is comprehensive, easy to read, lots of bullet points, lots of examples. You've got, you know, you've got research in there. You've got uh, p- parents' typical questions, scripts for how to respond to things. It's, it's uh, every parent should go on. There's a PDF version. There's an online version. We're going to put all of these in the show notes. Um, but the other thing I was impressed with that you also had, which I recommend to all my parents, if you're going to sit down and hand over devices to your kids at whatever age that might be, um, you know, uh, a, a hand-me-down tablet when your kid is interested in Paw Patrol, all the way up to a fully uh, Wi-Fi-enabled internet device smartphone for a kid. Um, but you've got a, a, an opportunity for parents to have a structure to talk about. If you're going to have devices, we need to have an understanding about responsibilities and a bunch of other things that parents need to cover. So can you talk about your media plan by age that's on your site as well? Sure. I mean, and and I will say with a caveat that every child is not the same. So these are not hard and fast rules of uh, what you do at what age. Um, You know, it's not like on your 13th birthday, you magically become capable of what you weren't, you know, capable of 24 hours ago. Um, So I think the most important thing is for parents who do know this child better than anyone on the face of the earth, who also understand that their different children are different and that one child might be ready to go on social media and behave themselves at age 10, and one may not be able to do it yet at age 20. Um, So I think the first thing is to really know your child and observe your child. Um, And, you know, like with the very young ones, to observe what their attention span is. Um, while it's, you know, very easy to plop them down in front of a television and say, oh, it's, it's Sesame Street, it's good stuff. It is good stuff, but 
children have a limited attention span and you will see that attention will wander off at a certain period of time. And sometimes it's just a matter of a few minutes with the very early children. Um, and that's your cue to move to something else, you know? So turn off the tablet and get blocks or read a book or, um, you know, take put them in the sandbox. Um, the kids learn all the time we need to be aware of how they learn and how to have the the learning materials available to them when they are most open to them. So that being said, um, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot is when should I give my kid a smartphone? Um, and the wireless companies have done a really good job of scaring parents into believing that they their child needs to have a cell phone with them at all times, just in case, you know, things get bad. What ends up happening, of course, is that that phone is a distraction from the business at hand, whether that be listening to a teacher in a classroom or just being with friends. Um, we are forgetting a little bit that one of the great learning curves of childhood is that you are on your own as an individual in school. You don't have mom or dad there with you. Um, and unfortunately, having phones means that there are some parents who helicopter in regularly during the day um, and never let their child explore being on their own. So they are not allowing their child to make mistakes and learn. They're not allowing their child to build their confidence in in managing themselves in the world. Um, and so I think that particularly there, there are some sort of hard and fast rules, like there's a group called wait until eight that says, you know, only in eighth grade do they get phones. Um, again, eighth grade is not a magical marker of being able to handle a smartphone. Um, but when a child asks for a phone, and they will, um, I say, sit down with the child and ask them what they need it for, what they will use it for. Um, and if their answer is, I need it because everyone else has one, that's not thinking of it as a tool. That is, you know, that is thinking of it as a status symbol. And I think that when they can articulate how they're going to use it, that's when you, before they even get the phone, you say, okay, here are the things you can use it for. Here are the things you are not to use it for. Um, I am going to have access to your phone. I'm going to have access to your passwords. Um, not just be your friend on social media, but actually have access to your passwords because you are venturing into a world alone otherwise, and I want to be there for you. So it's not to police them so much as to be a teacher, a mentor, a guide. And Let's not make it rock and roll. Let's not make it something you have to hide from your parents. Let's face facts. You know, when kids who are 10, 12, 13, 14, and they talk, I want my privacy, as they do. Um, privacy to me, to them, means so mom and dad can't see, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean, you know, the rest of the world. They could care less because the rest of the world doesn't have, you know, that, you know, palpable reality to them. Um and so, you know, and they can't understand the concept that what they post today may affect them a decade later when they apply for a job or apply to college or something of that nature. Um, and so we need to be present for them. Um, and we need to have them feel that they can be responsible. And we also need to have them 
determine in that conversation where we talk about what you're using it for, what you're not using it for, have them determine the consequences should they go over that guardrail. Um, you know, that, you know, and that's when they will say, because they want the phone, they say, well, you can take it away for a week or a month or whatever it is, but have them have ownership with their, uh, of their phone use, of their device use, um, and have them have ownership of the plan for using it. So it's not about you being a police officer so much as you supporting their success. And, and what I loved about that guideline, then, to your point, you don't have to t- tick off every box or whatever, but it gives parents a scaffolding of like, what are those vital conversations? What agreements do we need to have up front at, at this age? Mm-hmm. And they do change by age. It is it is different. Um, mm-hmm. The the amount of of um, how tight the guardrails are for a six year old is going to be different than the guardrails are for for an eight year old. But you might not right. have thought of all these things. Um, and you know, one thing I talk about parents is just simply the cost. I mean, if you've got a kid who still can't bring home a pair of mittens, do you really want to buy him a $600 phone? Like, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, exactly. and, if, and if they break it and you replace it, you know, they're going to break it every time there's a new upgrade because you're probably going to not want to move them from an iPhone 8 to a 12. But if it's broken, why would you go back to the old model? So, right. you know, we have to have agreements about just the responsibility of care, care and keeping of an actually expensive piece of property. Right. And, and kids hate this, but there's nothing wrong with starting with a flip phone. There's nothing wrong with starting with, you know, a phone that will, you know, voice, have voice communication, have text communication, but doesn't have access to the whole internet to, you know, play Candy Crush or, you know, buy shoes or whatever you can, I mean, you can do anything online. So um, I think that it's very important to help them learn to use these devices and platforms much the way we help them learn to drive a car. We don't throw the car keys to a four-year-old and say, have at it. You know, we don't give them a power saw um, just because they ask for it. Um, We introduce it at a time when they need that tool, at a time when they, to your best judgment, can handle it responsibly and respectfully of both others and of themselves. Um, And then you sit white knuckled in that front seat while they drive a few times. You do it with them, um, both to guide them, but but also to observe them and see how well they're handling it, how effectively they are um, using this tool and respecting this tool. And also, I just want to add a little caveat there, too, which is, and this is a quote from my friend Paul Rasmussen that says, if you expect your teenager to be a perfect adult, you're going to be disappointed. But if you expect your teen to be a perfect teen, you'll, you'll, you'll be okay. I mean, when we're looking at digital citizenship, and we do need to train them to, about how to be a good online citizen, but but we also have to remember that we didn't, you know, sit down and join our children's sleepover while they were telling silly jokes and, and you know... Um, if my parents heard every single thing I said, I mean, I've gone back and read my diaries and we made up lyrics that were like, you know, not harming o- people. But OMG. I, just, <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, kids right. are going to whatever, say dead baby jokes and make fun, whatever. They're going to go there. Um, and so if we scrutinize every single text, every single interaction w- without, you know, um, keeping it in proportion, um, yes, yes, learning opportunity when they cross the line, but we, we can't expect 
adult perfection in behavior as they're navigating these things either. And if we try to, you know, kind of be over their shoulder the whole time, um, they will never learn to self-discipline. I mean, part of, you know, parenting is moving discipline from outside in to inside out. Um, And um, if they know that you're there hovering over them, their whole motivation is going to be to subvert that as best as possible to, you know, get around it, to develop workarounds. But if you give them a little bit of freedom and essentially expect responsibility with that freedom, and if they stumble, then you pull back a little bit on the freedom. It's sort of like walking a dog and how much leash you give the dog, right? The the dog wants to go, go, go. And you let them go, go, go until they growl at another dog or they, you know, do something um, that is less useful and you pull the leash back a little bit. And the same thing with, with, with kids. And um, I do want to address that issue of perfect adult, perfect teen. Um, and say that neither of them actually exists. We <laughs> Good point. humans are imperfect, right? And we parents are imperfect. Um, so one of the things that I really encourage parents to do is to, first of all, expect that they will be imperfect as parents. It is more of an art than a science. Um, it can be supported by and guided by science, but the reality is um, we are making hundreds of risk benefit analyses on behalf of our children every day. Um, And sometimes we'll make the right decision. Sometimes we won't. And we will learn that only after the fact. So first of all, expect that we will be imperfect, forgive ourselves in advance and keep trying to perfect ourselves. Um, And that I think is a really important um, thing to keep in mind because I think parents feel a lot of guilt, right? They and, you know, they feel guilt about putting their kid in front of the TV. You know, they feel guilt about, you know, whatever Um, that is wasted energy. You know, if if we feel guilty, if we, you know, spend a lot of angst on all of that, we're not using that energy to help our children. We're using it to torture ourselves. And so, you know, I encourage parents not to enter into this world of digital parenting with fear Um, but with confidence and with the expectation that we will manage it imperfectly. Um, And we will, it will, we will treat it as an ongoing work in progress, which frankly parenting is anyway. Um, And uh, let's, let's learn from our kids who are incredibly facile with these tools and let's respect their voices in it. Um, But let's keep them safe and healthy and, um, nurtured to be the best humans they can be. Yeah. And most, I think most parents are doing better than they know, you know, and, and they, and they need to maybe hear that from people like you to, to that vote of confidence, like it will be okay. You're doing yeah. fine. It's good enough. Right. It's good enough parenting. Yeah. And kids are amazingly resilient. And here's another thing that I want to throw out there. Um, you know, that I thought about when we were talking about parents pushing strollers and looking at their, their phones. I think we teach kids that um, boredom is a bad thing. Boredom is something to be avoided. Boredom is something that we fill with memes online or emails or, you know, cooking shows or whatever. Boredom should be a child's friend. 
boredom is where creativity and imagination happen. And if we fill that space with whatever drivel is coming over online, we never exercise those muscles of reflection and thinking and, and thinking the new. Um, and boredom is the seat of creativity, not just because it creates some empty space to fill, but because that empty space is a little uncomfortable. And so we want to fill it with, you know, I mean, when was the last time you saw kids lying on their back in the grass, making shapes out of the clouds, right? Um, doesn't happen anymore. It used to happen all the time, you know? And so when my kids say I'm bored, I say, excellent, right? <laughs> you know, I think we need to bring back and embrace boredom um, because otherwise we will end up in these echo chambers that we enter online and we will never break out of them and create something new. Yeah. Beautiful. And I know you have an artistic background and I come from, you know, my mother was an art teacher, but also because artificial intelligence is going to take away all those other responsibilities. If there's one quality that we know humans do better than machines, it's being creative. We need to, we need to really hold on to that capacity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we also have to remember that even AI is created by humans. And if we don't keep our imagination and creativity, AI will be similarly stunted. Um, and so we, we need to understand that this tool is not a replacement for us, but as an extension of us. And can we use it to do those busy work things that will free us up? I mean, I think one of the great ironies is when the personal computer came about, when the smartphone came about, it was always think about how much more efficient we're going to be and how much more free time we will have. And what did it do? It turned us in exactly the opposite direction into people who work 24 seven, right? And, and so um, I think we have to take a step back and say, what do we want from ourselves? What do we want from life? What do we want from our children? Um, and let's remember to enjoy the process, not just be productive. Yeah, there's a there. That's my that is my quote of the week right there. <laughs> I love that. Listen, I want to be mindful of your time here. So we know at the, at the if people I'm going to put up the links. So if people visit the digital wellness lab, they're going to get not only that um, the wellness guide, the media plan, um, the opportunity to ask a mediatrician. You've people can submit questions there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there is also that database of um, uh, research that you, know, you are the hub of if people are saying, what does the research show? Uh, you've got that hub in the pulse reports. Um, and then the last thing, which I know we could probably do an entire other podcast on. Um, but you also are focusing in on something called problematic interactive media use, PIMU. And you even teach courses to people like me who is a clinician because this comes up in my practice all the time. Mm -hmm. But could you just say, can you give the definition of what a problematic interactive media use is and how parents can get support for that? Um, sure. And, and there'll be a little bit of a backstory here in that um, since the mid nineties, there has been concern about video game addiction or internet addiction. Um, and, you know, it has, it, was originally proposed, in fact, as a satire on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, of Mental Disorders. Um, and yet people said, but I have this problem, which is, you know, I can't break away from the internet. Um, 
And, you know, it, an internet addiction disorder is a, a identified diagnosis in China and in Korea. Um, and we are seeing a, a fair number of kids who go down the rabbit hole, um, if you will, um, to the point where they are not sleeping properly. They're not getting up for school. Some of them are dropping out of school. We've even had some kids who have um, attempted suicide because their parents took the router out or something of that nature. So it's quite serious in a small group of kids. The problem is that we have gone down the wrong angle when we go down the addiction angle. Um, it, it, this is not an addiction as we would think of to, you know, cocaine or opioids or nicotine or alcohol. Um, in large part, um, because the goal here is not to abstain from this behavior, but to self-regulate, to be able to use it effectively. Kids need interactive media to learn, to work eventually, to uh, entertain themselves, to have a social life. And we learned that in great detail during the pandemic and lockdown when we, that was the only connection we had to the outside world. Um, and so, We've also seen a number of kids, you know, um, go off the rails with this, you know, with the year of remote learning, et cetera. Um, a couple of things that we have discovered. First of all, that the addiction model doesn't work in a number of re reasons, for a number of reasons. Um, one being that it doesn't have a biologically reproducible effect on us when using, and especially when withdrawing the way true addictions do. Um, also, the word addict and addiction are stigmatizing in our society. You know, we think of it as something, as, as a character flaw or something that needs to be punished rather than something that needs to be healed. Um, and so I think that um, that keeps a lot of kids and parents from care early on in the process when it's much easier to redirect. Um, it's only when they really go down the tubes that that they end up showing up at our clinic. So one of the things we're trying to do with this clinic is to characterize what's going on um, so that we can feed that back into the system so that pediatricians, that school guidance counselors and teachers who see early signs can sort of call it out and, and we can correct it when it's easier to correct. Um, also to be able to prevent it for, for most kids because many kids use these devices and platforms very effectively and don't get in trouble. Um, but I think that the other piece of this that is really um, kind of mis we're misguided or it's, it, you know, to the idea of Maslow's law of the instrument, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, there are over 80 different terms for this. Um, you know, everything from smartphone disorder to, you know, video game addiction, et cetera, et cetera. What we are finding is that, um, first of all, it's not just gaming, which um, the DSM-5, the um, statistical manual, and um, actually the World Health Organization sort of pointing fingers at gaming disorder. It is the interactivity that draws us in and the variable reward system built into it. Um, but interestingly, we don't even think that this is actually a diagnosis, but maybe a syndrome. In other words, a collection of symptoms 
of underlying issues that are playing themselves out in the interactive space because we are finding we have yet to find a young person who doesn't have some underlying psychological struggle that is driving these behaviors. ADHD is huge in the kids who have gaming problems. Um, anxiety huge in the kids who have social media problems. So what we have found is that if we can identify and treat that underlying driver of these behaviors, then the behavioral modification improves. And another fun thing about PIMU, problematic interactive media use, is you can write it with two Greek letters. PIMU. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's amazing. Listen, I know you've got to get off and keep doing your important work there on site. Um, thank you so much for all you've shared for the ongoing work that you're doing. Uh, I know this is you've you've launched, but it's it's meant to be a growing, continuing um, body of knowledge and resources for parents. So I'm going to encourage everyone to go visit all the links and um, hopefully we'll have you back as you've got new things to report to us. Absolutely. Yeah. Please uh, use our materials and also tell us what you need that's not there. Right. Tell us what your questions are, your concerns are that we can hopefully answer. And keep developing uh, materials to address it as it as it grows and changes. Wonderful. Well, thank you for all you do. Take care until the next time. Okay. be well. Take care. Bye bye. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.